We're back in plenary session, real life edition. We're back for episode two with Dr. Timothy Olivier. This is VK Prasad Lab Updates with hi, Timothy Olivier. Timothy. Hi, Vinay. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Here Again? we are. Here we are, seated. This is a good, I think, uh, your good feedbacks? Some feedback. Some, some. Modest feedback. <laughs> People be- be- Better than nothing. Well, some is better than nothing, yeah. If you do like this segment, write to us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com or drop me a line if you know me. I'm curious how it's going, but uh, we got some, some feedback. The feedback was positive. Certainly wasn't negative. So here we are. We're talking about oncology. We left off in the first round. We talked about many of the recent papers, probably the papers in the last six months or so that we've been working on. We're going to go back and talk about, I think, all of the papers we worked on, finally get into censoring. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about Onco Twitter. Yeah. You're on Onco Twitter. Yeah. Reluctantly? Not reluctantly. I don't know if I get the real definition of reluctantly. But reluctantly uh, meaning? Uh, against I, my will? Yes. Not, <laughs> like not, bo- like not, a booster. Yeah, not really. <laughs> As I told you before, mm-hmm. um, I'm a bit balanced about Twitter because I found many good accounts. Mm-hmm. I find many people sharing their works. So um, Twitter was really important for me in my in my career in my mm-hmm. development of thinking, mm-hmm. but in other way, for for other reasons, I find it a place really difficult to navigate. Sometimes you you see some comments that are very painful to see. Mm-hmm. So I think in, it's in very on, in onco Twitter, oncology Twitter. Are you talking broadly medical Twitter? Uh, medical was, Twitter is a disaster. I, I, I was, I was it's a disaster. Let's focus on Uncle okay. Twitter. Uncle we can't Twi- get into medical Twitter. Half those people don't know what Uncle they're talking Twitter, about. Twitter, um, I think we don't have so many voices that are really um, critical. Yeah. 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 I was about to say, I just looked at it recently and it's uh, pat, pat each other on the back fest. It's disgusting. These people, all they do is praise each other nonstop and nothing but uh, insincere flattery. And that's 50% of it. Congratulations on your study. Congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. There's no control arm. The control arm is beneath the standard of care. There's inappropriate crossover. There's not crossover when you need it, like my paper with Allison. Um, so many flaws that are bad for patients, but yet it's all celebratory. That's, that's, that's a chunk. Yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, recently I saw um, a very interesting video about uh, trust and trustworthiness, and I think... Mm-hmm. If we want to have a real impact and if we want to be trusted by patients, by by scientists, we have to be fair in the way we evaluate we science. Talk about the findings, mm-hmm. talk talk about the results, talk, talk about the new drugs. And so sometimes I have a feeling that it's um, it's uh, somehow overstated the results of uh, drugs and uh, and it concerns me because I think on the long run, we will lose some trust. Oh, I think so. So I think, yes, I think that's right. It should be about trust. 50% is praising each other for lousy studies. And then like the other 30, 40% is like people talking as if they care about vulnerable and marginalized populations while promoting cancer policies and drugs that make these inequities even worse. Drugs that have very poor data that don't work. Um, and they're, they're, it's always lamenting that we're not doing more of a drug that's toxic and doesn't work in an underserved population. When the right answer is, well, why are we doing that in an over-medicalized population? Not that we should do more of it on the other side. Um, but it's, it's really quite pain, painful. I've, very rarely do I see anybody actually say anything that interests me in oncology. Um, there are a few accounts that are good. I think you follow the same. There's like uh, a handful. Sorry? Small, small handful. <laughs> I think it's better than nothing. Yeah, that's true. And, and, that's better. That's and, okay. And, okay, and, go on. Go really, on. Really, Push um, back. No, I think it's really better than nothing. And really for, for me and I think for others, I have friends also, um, it's a source of uh, findings, it's a source of knowledge. So I don't want to, to, to say it's all wrong. But um, yeah, I have the same feelings as you as a... Um, uh, it's a handful of them, yeah. Handful. What was that other thing I saw recently that, um, you know, when but, you... S- but maybe oncology Twitter is a bit different from other parts of Twitter, actually, nowadays. <laughs> the rest of Twitter is... Uh, well, first they were experts on COVID, and now they're experts on Ukraine. They've been... 
<laughs> now they're experts on Ukraine. I don't know how that happened. They uh, they uh, they have about the same knowledge of Ukraine as they do about COVID. That's clear to me. Okay, let's talk about our papers. <laughs> let's talk about our papers. You're a wise man. No comment. No comment. Uh, we're going to call you Timothy No Comment Olivier. <laughs> um, no comment on, on some topics. On some topics. Okay, yeah. let's get into some topics where you will comment. Yeah. Censoring. Yeah, censoring. So, yeah, how did this get started? Um, I guess many years ago, I think I read, what was it, Bolero. <clears throat> and I think... Bolero, yeah. Bolero Exemestain. 1. Yeah, Eximestane with uh, Everlimus versus, exem versus um, Eximestane Placebo. And um, I think it was brought to my attention by Tito Foho, who was the program director of the National Cancer Institute, that in the first few time periods, you know, it's a randomized control trial, in the first few time periods, way more people who are assigned to Everlimus are dropping out than on the control arm. Way more people. And he figured that out by getting a ruler and drawing on that Kaplan-Meier curve and subtracting from the number at risk and blah, 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 blah. That's how he got there. But it was true. There were way more. And so I ended up getting really interested in that. And I met uh, Usama Bilal, who was a statistician slash epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, where I was at that time, uh, spending a little bit of time over there. And uh, we actually modeled, you know, that the entire assumption of the Kaplan-Meier method is that the people who are censored at every time interval, well, of course, maybe let's back up. What is Kaplan-Meier? Kaplan-Meier is a method of maximal information harvesting. You have everybody enrolled at time zero, and you try to take as much information from them as you possibly can. But one of the facts about life is they didn't all enroll on the same day. And so you have varying levels of follow-up with these people. And yet you use the information you do have insofar as you have it. And then beyond that, you average the information of the people you do have. That's the beauty of the method. And Kaplan-Meier, one of three things can happen to you. Well, I guess one thing to say is the endpoint is always a time to have an endpoint. It can't be an endpoint that by definition you've already had at time zero. That would be stupid. It has to be something that only happens over time. And by definition, you don't have a time zero. Like you're alive, then you die or you're alive, and then you have progression-free survival, which is a composite time to event endpoint, which will introduce some complexities in your work. And so you follow people over time, and the number at risk will get smaller and smaller, both because some people have the event, but also because you no longer have follow-up for some people. And when you no longer have follow-up for some people, that is censoring. Now, you can lose follow-up for a lot of reasons. One is you enrolled someone in March, and now it's June, and you just don't know what will happen to them in August, because that's the future. That's one type of loss, to, that's one type of censoring. It's not lost to follow-up, it's just that you don't know what happens to them. But another type of sensor is you roll them in March, and then come April, you never heard from them again. They vamoosed, and that is lost to follow-up, and that's another type of censoring. And we'll talk about the third type of censoring, which is they don't get the scans, and that applies to PFS, but not for others. So we got interested in this, and you saw a lot of dropout in Bolero, and I think the answer is clear, because some people taking that combo didn't like taking Everlimus. It's not a fun medicine to take. So they had side effects and they dropped out disproportionately. But what that means is the people whose survival you're averaging, the PFS you're averaging, it is not everybody. It's the people who are healthy enough not to be screened out by your Everlimus challenge. And that may not be reflective of everyone else's PFS. And so, lo and behold, if you start to model different scenarios, well, then the last thing to say, the Kaplan-Meier method assumes that the people who are dropping out have the same rate of the event as the people who stayed in. They're no healthier, wealthier, or wise. But the moment you start to violate that assumption, you violate the assumption of uninformative censoring, which is a key assumption of Kaplan-Meier. And so we altered, Usama Bilal and I altered that assumption. We said, what if everyone who dropped out lived happily ever after? And then what if everyone who dropped out immediately progressed? And we did that for both arms. And we show that under some modest assumptions, you can get the curves to cross. And so in Bolero, there was no survival benefit in the updated follow-up in the Annals of Oncology. And one explanation is that it was, quote, confounded by post-protocol therapy, which is a stupid thing that stupid people say, because what that means is that all the other drugs were able to achieve the same survival, so why would you call that confounding? That's called, you don't need to use the new drug up front. Okay, but the other explanation is that there wasn't even a PFS benefit, because that was likely due to an imbalance in censoring and a violation of the Kaplan-Meier assumption. And that's what we argued in our paper. Fast forward, Tito Foho pressured, what's his name, Richard Oh, no, David Collingridge. Templeton. Ah. Oh, no. well, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, okay. I think Templeton saw the same thing we saw, yeah. and they wrote a paper, yeah, yeah. but, you know, those are sort of contemporary things. We both saw the same thing independently, as is often the case in this line of work. Um, and then Tito talked to David Collingridge, and he persuaded him of something very interesting. He said that, you know, I've had to go with a ruler and calculate all this censoring. That's arduous and not very useful. Why doesn't the Lancet and the Lancet journals include the number of people censored at every time point and publish that? And that will be helpful for future research. And they agreed. 
which is actually the power of the journal because when they compel the authors to put something in there, by authors I mean the medical writer who works for the company, <laughs> they put it in there and then you can do some clever work. And so then a few years went by, I think Tito had moved on to other things and I had forgotten about it and then one day it hit me. That number's been reported for the last three years and so I got Kate Rosen and Emerson Chen, my good friends and colleagues too, scraped that data and they went through all these Lancet papers and they scraped it and then we published that paper in the European Journal of Cancer on, uh, on censoring and it's an empirical analysis. I think it's the first empirical analysis rather than these commentaries and one-offs and basically it shows, I think that this is true, that in randomized controlled trials of anti-cancer drugs, early on there is an imbalance in censoring. More people, but this turns out to be, more people drop out of control arms, likely because they have, what do they call it, patient disappointment. Yeah, as we talk about satisimab, Povitecan, or vision trial. Vision trial, yeah. which, yeah, that's a great you example. You have a, a huge dropout of patients very early on, mostly in open-label design, and this can be a sign of uh, what, yeah. you're, what you're describing now. And open-label, they know they're not getting the good drug, so, yeah. but even in uh, a blinded trial, they may not feel the side effects, and they'll they'll sniff it out. Mm -hmm. So um, that that is, in fact, what you find. You find an imbalance and dropout in the control arms early. But there are some exceptions where there's a huge imbalance of dropout in one arm or the other, and both are problematic. And Bolero is an outlier. It's a huge dropout in the intervention arm, likely because of toxicity. But they're different stories for different trials. Um, and then as you get further on in our paper, we show that by the end of a Kaplan-Meier curve, there's way more censoring in the experimental arm. And I always ask audiences why they think that is, and very rarely do they get the right answer. The right answer is that actually some of our drugs work, and so those people, you, you're dropping off because you just don't have as much follow-up on people. So that was the paper we published, and I think it's a pretty useful empirical analysis. Then you emailed me. Yeah. I mailed you about one specific trial. Yeah, let's talk about it. So what did you email me? Um, I saw in one, so maybe we... We set up a bit about the trial. Yeah, talk so, about so, yeah. So the trial is in a, is a Checkmate 067 trial in a metastatic melanoma patient. So the setting is first line melanoma, and you have three groups of treatment. So basically, the control arm is ipilimumab, mm -hmm. and you have two experimental arms with combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab and nivolumab alone. So you're saying nivo ipi, nivo ipi, three arm study. Absolutely, yes, but. EP is a control arm, so the trial was designed to compare NIVO EP to EP or NIVO to EP, not NIVO EP to NIVO. Oh, God forbid we do the one comparison everyone's interested in. Go on. So, um, so what I saw, what so maybe so you you also know NIVO EP has a lot of toxicity. I think that's the other yeah yeah. I point. think I think I will I yeah. will go on on yeah. the point of toxicity. So maybe the first thing to know um, every every oncologist know that that grade three four toxicities from these agents are very different from toxicities from chemotherapy from oral agents um, they can lead to long-lasting toxicities they require sometimes weeks or months of corticosteroids sometimes other agents and they can lead to uh, debilitating conditions so this is not like a great for neutropenia due to chemotherapy that sometimes really you don't even feel sometimes sometimes you don't even feel great three toxicity we call that immune related um, effect this can really be long-lasting and these are not i-r-a-e immune related adverse yeah, event absolutely. IRAE. -E. so Silly. so this is an important premise i think and um, the second thing is the combination arm so NIVO and EP, so EP is, is at three, 3 milligrams per kg. Uh, this is important because according to the dose, the rate are not the same, but in this study, so the combination arm um, at the longest follow-up that were published recently, it's 59%, so almost 60% of patients will have a grade 3 or 4 toxicity. 59%? 59%. So you're saying there's a chance. 59 percent it's, uh, it's a high chance huge it's a huge chance huge. it's not just a little chance it's a real chance it's a risk or chance as, you, risk. as uh, you choose your word you choose your word yeah and in the nivolumab arm mm -hmm. 20, 24 mm -hmm. 24 i see so, so it's, in not, other words, it's, it's not nothing two two equally tolerable regimens they've so, got to be equally so, tolerable yeah so 60 so, 60 or so what is it 59 versus 22 yeah 24 24, 24. okay yeah. so what you're saying and is just that, just uh, and EP 20, 20, uh, 28. There's a 30-point difference. Yeah. A 30-point difference. That's got to mean something. So 
And the quality of life data were collected along this trial. So this trial mm -hmm. is a landmark trial in metastatic melanoma first line. So I think there are five or six publications. Um, quality of life data were collected and basically the quality of life results are that there are no difference in quality of life between arms. And so this was surprising to me because when no difference but when you know this difference in rate of grade three four toxicity when you know the type of toxicity it, it is surprising not to find any quality of light difference what you're saying is that you would have expected with nevo ipi with a 59 percent rate of grade three four toxicity versus the 20 some percent to have worse quality of life you would have yeah, expected i would have expected that uh, you want worse quality and, of and, life and you i don't it. want but you don't want it i don't want but that was that was a uh, that was a discrepancy between my clinical experience and what I... And the numbers. Yeah, and the numbers. It's hard to hide a 30 percentage point grade 3, 4 toxicity under the rug. It's hard to sweep so, it under the rug. So, so let's assume maybe, you know, it's uh, so well managed and maybe I don't... I mean, but I was, you know, I was very... Skeptical. Uh, skeptical. So I'm surprised. And so I took a deep dive in the data. And what you immediately see when you see at the compliance table. Mm -hmm. So the compliance table is the number of patients filling out their quality of life questionnaires at each time point. So what you can what you can see in the data of compliance table, it you have a huge dropout, so a huge amount of, of missing data in the combination arm as compared with the other arms. And actually, we make the statistical calculation; and it was statistically significant. Well, well, well. So you're saying your intuition was you're given these two drugs and you've seen in clinic and we've all seen. I mean, if anyone who rounds on an inpatient oncology service, practically half of it these days is uh, nevo-epitoxicity. I mean, it's an unbelievable amount of toxicity. You see the nevo-epitoxicity. You say that's not so good. Hypothalami, lungs, Lung. colitis, endocrine organs. You know, it's not so hot. And then nevo, you know, it's much better tolerated than nevo ipi. Let's be honest with that. I mean, I mean, yes, it has side effects. Yes, but not like nevo ipi. I mean, 30 percentage point lower. That's something. And then the quality of life is the same. Or what, they, they use something. It's uh, not deteriorated. You know, they always have some yeah, weaselly no, way to no, say it. Non-clinically meaningful difference. No clinically meaningful difference, yes. Some weasel medical writer way to say <laughs> that, we, that, that it's not significant. But, but the, 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 that's a tension. The tension is, how can you have so much more grade 3-4 toxicity but not have a meaningful difference? How can that be? That is the tension. That was what you saw. You emailed me, and then that was what piqued my interest too. But I didn't have the answer. You found the answer. And the answer was? So the answer is... Um, they're not filling out the table. Yeah. Obviously, all this is a hypothesis generating, but uh, it's very plausible with uh, the toxicity rate. So You know what it's like? It's like when you find somebody after a crime, they're holding the gun that was the crime. Their fingerprints are on the crime scene, and there's blood all over their pant leg. It's like that. It's <laughs> hypothesis generating, but... Uh, yeah, it's hard uh, to think of another hypothesis. Yeah, I think it's really hard to think about an, another hypothesis. And the the thing I, I have I have to admit the thing uh -huh. I was really disappointed in the specific quality of life report. It's not appearing re at almost at all. Yes, there are the compliance table. You have to go to see them, but it's not reported. And the other thing they should have done, because when you have this kind of thing, they should have done imputation analysis. Uh, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. Okay, the thing I want to make clear in the listener's mind is Timothy has found a discrepancy. And unlike the rest of you who would go on Twitter and say congratulations to the investigators. <laughs> like a bunch of... I let you these words. I let you these words. I'll take the heat. I, I, I see the rest of you. Congratulations to the investigators. Even quote, quality of life is not deteriorated. You're just taking it at face value. No, I mean, I think there's more than... There are a lot of people who are skeptical like Timothy, but a lot of people would praise emptily. Okay, Timothy took the deep dive. He looked into the compliance table, and what he sees is... Why are these people on Nevo Ippy, they ain't filling out the QOL form? The people on Nevo are filling it out, but the people on Nevo Ippy ain't filling it out as often as they ought to. Why are they not filling it out? They're not filling out that form. And that is the rub. Yeah, you, you, you talk about informative censoring. It's when your censoring rate or when your missing data rate contain an information. And this information 
in these studies is likely to be toxicity. That's a key point. So what he's saying is that they're not missing at random. See, if you took away some quality of life forms at random in Nevo Ippi, then you would have seen the real quality of life toxicity. But if the people who don't fill out the form are disproportionately the ones suffering, then the people who fill out the forms are the ones not suffering, and the quality of life for the people who fill out the forms ain't the quality of life of everyone in the study. And so what Timothy is saying is not only is there a differential rate of censoring. It's very likely that it is informative. There's something different about the people not filling out the form. Yeah, the assumption as a missing at random, as you said, is a violet, violated at this point. So it's missing not at random. And so here you have a kind of problem in interpreting your data. This is something that very few people realize in biomedicine, whether it's a randomized study or a retrospective study. When you have missing data, and you always have missing data, and one thinks they don't have missing data, then they don't know how to do data analysis because they have some missing data. They just don't know what. Actually, if you tell me that you don't have any missing data, then I'm even more scared that you don't know what the, <laughs> the hell you're doing. Okay. But you, the you're almost always assuming it's missing at random. You're almost always assuming it's missing random. The truth of life is it's often not missing at random. And it's not missing at random. It's missing because of a reason. And when it's missing because of a reason, you're introducing big form of bias. That's a problem. Yeah, I, I, I think you should be suspic suspicious about these things when you have huge difference in toxicity profile. I think it's one, one of the, the first step. When, when you have a huge difference in toxicity rates, toxicity profile, and you have this kind of difference in missing, um, in uh, the rate of missing data, then you have to rethink about it. Is there any uh, informative censoring here? So then you talk about this next thing. The way to show the robustness of your analysis, to show that there's a re this is true, is to do something what you call imputation. Yeah, imputation, they, it's a kind of sensitivity analysis. So we knew at each time point in every arm of the study how many missing data there were. So what we did here is that we reconstructed the curves of quality of life and we reconstructed two, we added two other scenarios by replacing the missing data by high value quality of life data or low value quality of life data. Importantly, we, we did not put extreme values. We put values that were in range of the distribution. So uh, our, um, our reconstructed um, data were plausible. It was not, you know, um, extreme values. Fantastical. Yeah. So what you're saying is my Usama Bilal paper, you think we use two extreme values when we impute? No, no, absolutely. You're critical uh, of I, our I, no, no. You're saying my paper is just shady? to reassure <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the listeners okay. that, that will read, obviously, this paper, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> they... they it, it, was, um, it was a fair imputation data analysis. And so when we did that for every arm, we saw that in the combination arm of EP with NIVO, there were, uh, in the low value imputation data analysis, um, very often it was below the clinically meaningful mm, threshold. And this is what, this is what, this is, this was not the case in NIVO or EP Interesting. Arm. And by we who did this, you mean you? Me and Alison <laughs> and you. What about me? And you, and you. You and Alison, you mean. You, but yeah, me okay. and Alison, you and Alison. And you, and you. Well, I looked at yeah. it later and I had some things to say, but okay. All right, so back to the point. This is actually brilliant. See, what he's saying is, unlike Usama Bilal and you who used extreme <laughs> scenarios, which we did, I'll be perfectly honest, we used extreme scenarios. I, I didn't knew, yeah. Yeah, but we oh, did. Okay, okay. But we used. But but the reason why we no, used no, it, it was different correct. because it was event or no event. Yes, right. Yeah. So it has to be binary. And then the other thing is, I mean, I used extreme. To, but even if you used, you know, seventy five percent discounting or sixty percent discounting, you'd still get the same. It's curves are still cross. Anyway, any 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 nerd who really wants to dive into the weeds, you'd show, I could prove it to you that even with 40, 50, 60 percent discounting, you'd still get the same result. Anyway, but his paper is different because he's doing quality of life. It's not a binary event. It is something that has a numerical score. And what Timothy is saying is, look, Nevo Ippi, they're not filling out this form they're really missing the form a lot of the form that they're, they're not filling it out who's not filling it out is it the guy at home sipping champagne with his feet up no it's probably the person in the hospital with grade three four toxicity they're the ones not happy to be filling out the form so let's assume that the quality of life of at least some of the people not filling out the form is slightly worse than the average person who did fill out the form not even a lot worse within the realm of plausibly worse and when you do that you find that very quickly nevo ippi has inferior quality of life compared to the reference standard ipilimumab versus nivolumab compared to the reference standard ipilimumab. Does not tip, does not become inferior because fewer people didn't fill out the form. It's very simple. It's a simple, very simple, anyone could do it. Yeah.
So congratulations to the investigators. <laughs> so I think, I, I mean, it's a piece of data we want yes. to have the real quality. You, 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 maybe you want to, to talk about that also. You published all the papers on yeah, quality of life. Yeah. Uh, and that is a bit sad because there, there are a lot of limitations in quality of life reports. Um, and this was also the next part of our paper. We analyzed, um, yeah. you, you, you want me to talk about that now? I want you to talk, or maybe I should mention what the thing you're alluding to, and then you can talk about it. Okay, so Timothy's point, I'm just going to hammer it one more time, because it's a brilliant point. Actually, he did all the work, and Allison did, and I looked at it. Um, and, and I had some things to say, but uh, I can't even half those things. We'd have to beep out of this show. Okay, uh, <laughs> so um, Timothy's point is that, I mean, obviously there is the discrepancy. It never made sense to anyone, and you know, it also made me squeezy when I saw it because there's something fishy going on there. Timothy found it, he investigated it, and I think he's really put his finger on why it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because they're not filling out the form. People are not filling out the form. They're not the average person. They're slightly doing worse, and if you impute that, you will find that actually it is a worse quality of life. It's not, so, it's not rocket science. That a drug that gives more toxicity by 30 percentage points, you're not going to have the same quality of life. Okay, that's a good point. The thing that he's alluding to is that this is all getting at the philosophy of what is quality of life. Quality of life is, you know, once you get randomly assigned to a treatment strategy, what is the quality of life of your journey with cancer? And if you get nevo ipi with metastatic melanoma, and let's say you're BRAF wild type, once you progress, what's the doctor going to give you? I, decarbazine? Put you on a trial? Your wild type, what are they going to give you? They're out of options. So your quality of life can be, you can be on cloud nine for nevo ipi, but if you progress on nevo ipi and the doctor don't got anything to offer you, I would imagine your quality of life not going to be so good. Meanwhile, if you progress on nivolumab and you're BRAF wild type and, you, and then you get your next treatment, the doctor presumably can give you ipilimumab and he has one more bite at the apple, one more bite at the apple to try to get your sort of on the tail of the immunotherapy curve, okay, potentially. And you can also give to carbazine um, and also put you on trial. So you have a little bit more ap options. So when you do combined drugs that are previously used in sequence, one, PFS is not a metric that matters. That would be silly to say. Many people say that, but it's not a metric that matters because if anything, you should use PFS2 because you're using both drugs and then you have nothing in your armamentarium versus one than the other. So use PFS2, not PFS1. The other thing is, what about quality of life? And if you just look at quality of life early while you're on the drug, you're of course, you're going to favor the combo that has deeper responses and longer PFS. That's always going to have an early quality of life benefit. But what will happen later when you run out of options, your quality of life is going a tank on your Nevo Ippy arm, and it's going to be higher in the control arm. Maybe I, I can say you published that with Alison on yes. the, the time where the quality of life is captured. That's what I was, yes. And uh, he's the only man who reads papers. Look at this. Okay, so yes, so what we did was with Alison, we looked at the length of someone's cancer journey and how long they capture quality of life. There's always a background noise, you know. It's always it's okay. That's life. That's life. Re re real life edition. You always see me on my uh, on my on my videos complaining about mailman or something. Okay. All right. Well, something else. Okay. Um, so we looked at the journey and what percent of the journey is captured in quality of life. And of course, it's not the whole journey. It's a fraction. It's the upfront part. So, even, so and, and you're pointing out the fact that also quality of life is distorted because of censoring. So what we're both getting at is we're both having hands on the elephant. We're not touching the same part, but these papers are complementary. And what they're saying is, if you care about this thing called quality of life, and you ought to care, because in fact, people care about it more than living longer, you ought to care. And if you care about it, you need to measure it, one, for the duration of someone's cancer journey, two, accurately without dropouts and missing data. And if you're not gonna do that, then don't come at me and tell me you've improved quality of life. You've done no such thing. You've improved quality of life among the people who filled out the form for a short period of time, but you didn't improve quality of life, what it meant to have that diagnosis and live the rest of your life with it. You didn't do that, so get out of my face. So, yeah, as you said, there are many limitations in the quality of life reports. And maybe the next step we did in the table, our, our, yeah, Talk so, about the table. so what we did is just to assess for missing data in all reports published in six high impact journals during more than five years uh, that reported on quality of life results. So we selected 215 trials. And you have guidelines about how to report on missing data. So basically, you have a, to have a compliance table, as we talk about. You have to, to specify the statistical analysis that you will conduct and other things. And our fin findings was pretty sobering because at the end of the day, 16 studies, 7% of studies met these guidelines, meaning that, okay, Meaning that, that in most of them, I'm not saying in every of them of the other ones, you have 
a missing data issue, but you cannot rule out, you cannot even evaluate that. So yeah, it's disappointing. 93% of the time, you, you don't know what you don't know. You don't it, know what you don't know. It's not reported according to what would be the standard of care for reporting quality of life results and missing data. Recently, you went to a restaurant, did you not? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. Maybe more than one. Maybe more than one. And every once in a while, if someone asks you which restaurant was better, you'd be able to say it was that one over there. Yeah. Have you ever ran a restaurant? No. Do you work as a chef in a restaurant? No. Then how do you know which restaurant is better? I see your point. Maybe <laughs> I let you. I see your point. Yeah, because you can taste. I see these people on the internet, and they're still out there. Every week, there's a new one. They say, Timothy Olivier, have you ever run a randomized control trial? No. Have you been the PI of a study like this? No. Have you ever published as an investigator the quality of life data of a randomized control trial? No. So I, then I'm not sure it would happen. I'm, no. not, I'm not sure it will happen now. <laughs> they can't have you around. You ask too many tough questions. So what makes you qualified to assess this? I think this is an important point um, and also related to how you can independently appraise something. If you are really involved in something, and I'm not talking just about financial conflict of interest, it, it can also be intellectual. It's difficult to really appraise independently something you are deeply involved, you are believing it. And I think this is a point. So yes, this kind of criticism I, I can understand, but I think it's not valid. That's what I think. I think it's a silly thing people say, and I'll go further. I think that the people who are the PIs of these quality of life studies, they didn't do much. I mean, it's the industry who has a quality of life data. It's the industry statistician who analyzes, and the industry statistician puts together the figures and tables. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky, the person whose name is the first author actually did some of the drafting of the intro results or the intro discussion. Uh, I'm not sure, Vinay. I'm not sure they're aware of this rate of missing data in the combination arm. I'm I, not sure. I'm, I'm not, not sure. sure. In fact, I think that the investigator on the study, all they see is they go to a you know a Zoom meeting and then the statistician shows some slides and says, this is what it looked like. There was no deterioration. And say, okay, good. And then they sign off on the manuscript that the medical writer has prepared for them. I don't even think they've edited the manuscript. But here's my point. So then they can go around and say, you know, I've been the PI of this study, so I know what it's like. But you don't know what it's like. You actually never thought about it for one second. You don't know about missing data. You don't know about imputation. You don't know about making the curve. You didn't even know to ask the guy who showed you the figure that that was an issue. You didn't even think to at query that. In fact, in fact, actually, the one thing you could have done, because you are a doctor, you could have felt in your gut there's some discordance between grade three toxicity and the quality of life, and you could have asked, that doesn't make sense. There's got to be something going on. But... I'm not sure they're doing that in bad faith. I, I, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure it's an... I think, it's a system. It's a, and, and I think they trust the quality of life data. They say, okay, that's good. Maybe they are reassured. You, you, I, I see what you're saying. It's not bad faith. I mean, it's not bad faith like they're not maliciously wanting to distort the product. But it is bad faith in the sense it's ignorance. They don't know. They don't even know to ask for that. So they're ignorant. And then here's what they do. It's one thing to be ignorant, which I know they are. I know they are ignorant because when I talk to them about this, they don't know what the hell we're talking about. I know they're ignorant. A lot of them are. They're ignorant because they've never actually trained their mind in how to read or interpret trials. And it's fine to be ignorant. That's what I'm okay with. But they have the... Oh, watch my language. They have the arrogance to be ignorant, and then they go on Twitter, and then they say the only people qualified to comment about this RCT is someone who's run an RCT. Someone ignorant like you? Why shouldn't the person commenting about the RCT be someone who actually understands what the analysis is doing and how it can be gamed, as we have done, proved is that we have actually recreated your whole thing and imputed in a number of different scenarios. So not only, so, and that is bad faith. Then the argument is bad faith. I, I think maybe it's important to raise here that our whole, whole point is really about patient advocacy. Of course. It's really about um, what you will propose and based on what you will propose and even if the quality of life would have been worse and presented as worse, that doesn't mean you will, you you won't use this treatment. But you have to have all the data, you know, in a fair manner. You know, the efficacy data, toxicity data, quality of life data. And here, yeah, I think there were really an issue here. This issue, I think, the reason it is so important is that um, had they reported it in the way that I would have liked them to, 
um, we all know this Checkmate 067, Larkin et al., has not yet yielded an overall survival benefit. Is that accurate? Or is it? Or are they saying their OS benefit is positive now? Um, uh, we have something uh, coming oh, okay, soon. Okay, so okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I won't scoop yeah. us. Okay. The next point, though, is that among the people who got nivolumab, they didn't all get ipilimumab at progression. Uh, 40% of them did not receive ipilimumab. Yeah, so poor post-protocol therapy. The philosophical question this trial sought to ask was, is the combination of nivolumab better than the sequence of nivolumab? It does not answer that question. But they have claimed massive market share. I mean, they have got a lot of people, young people, to take both and have immune-related adverse events. And they do so under the promise that our quality of life is not worse than nivolumab alone. Or is not, is not deteriorated comes ipi alone. Maybe and we can, when we have this thing... Uh, we'll come back yeah, to this. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. I'll let, I'll let it go. I'll let it no, go No, 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 because we have something... I know, yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. It tells me to back down. No, to, to talk maybe like, more. This is what, well, time. you're like yeah. the European Union. You see aggression and you say, take it easy. No, no, I want to be... You're creating a no-fly no zone on this I topic. I want to speak freely about this maybe soon. A no-fly zone over this topic for now. No-fly. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll put that point aside because this is a good, this is a good topic. Um, closing points on this topic. Okay, here are the closing points and then I'll give you the last word. Point number one. Um, the Kaplan-Meier method is a beautiful method to maximally information harvest. It's actually very, very clever the more you think about it. And to really be, understand it, I think you have to go, if you're listening and you actually care to understand it, make an Excel spreadsheet, make a life table, and actually do it yourself by hand. Actually do a few by hand, and you'll start to understand how it actually constructed. The issue, of course, is that you have to handle when you run out of data. And the way you handle that is you assume that the people who are contributing to that time point actually had the same probability of event in that time point as the people who you don't have information from. But that's an assumption. That's the assumption of uninformative censoring. That assumption might not be true. It's certainly not true for PFS, and it's often not true for health-related quality of life. And that, when you test that assumption, when you ask whether the results are robust to different assumptions, you may find that the thing you think is evaporating. Um, so that's one part of the argument. The next part of the argument is many of these trials don't adhere to quality reporting guidelines, so we cannot really evaluate them as we would have liked to. Um, and the third part, the third part of the argument is help quality of life. People keep saying quality of life. What the thing is that they're capturing is not in fact quality of life. And I see a lot of people making careers now talking about quality of life and patient outcomes and blah, 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 blah. But everything I see them working on is tangential from the core issue of how do you actually measure this thing that you think you're measuring. And if you're not measuring what you think you're measuring, you are living in a fairy tale land, a deception. And then the last point that only I make, and you have nothing to do with since you're staying way, way away from this issue, which is that... I think there is a problem, and I think the problem is is that um, many people who are PIs and, and authors of these papers are not equipped. They're not been trained. They're not taught. They don't know. Timothy's good to point out it's not in bad faith always. Sometimes it might be. I mean, they are getting hefty payments from the company sometimes. But it's not always in bad faith. Sometimes it's just ignorance. But ignorance is a problem, and ignorance is a problem when you pair it with arrogance. And so the arrogance I see is to tell other people that they're not qualified to speak. And I always see them picking on poor Aaron Goodman, who is, of course, much sharper than they are on a number of topics. And I think that's very bad. And actually, it just creates a culture of silence because then all the fellows and residents who see problems in these studies, they don't want to say anything. If, you, maybe, if, if you're if you going to tell a faculty member like Aaron Goodman that he should shut his mouth, um, and, you know. And maybe maybe you, you have the same experience. Um, I think things have changed with time. I remember really when, you know, your senior colleagues were the first to go criticizing a new trial. Uh, you have this kind of uh, culture. So, and I have the feeling that is uh, slowly, slowly evaporating. You know, that's a great point. The culture is is dead. It's on its light. It's on its. It's dying. I'm not saying it's dying, but it's dying. Maybe, you, maybe, maybe also Twitter is not you know capturing. No, but I I'll put it. I'll argue it's dying in two ways. One. 25 years ago, the people who had careers in academics, Tito and Ian, Tanok and Foho, I think two of the best commenters about articles, especially of that era, how, would, how did they make their claim to fame? Foho was a lab guy. He does basic science lab. Tanok is a lab guy and a trialist, but not a trialist by birth, a trialist by happenstance. You know, he became the PI of the docetaxel study, but it wasn't early in his career. In fact, he might have been in his 50s, I don't know, 50s perhaps when he became the PI of the study. 
but they had built a career in science, doing science day in and day out, criticizing lab experiments with their team and talking about why it doesn't really prove what we think and how to make the manuscript stronger, a certain type of cognitive thinking. And then they built that up. And then finally, in a certain decade, typically the 2000s, and I think that's the other thing is, what, why did they not comment so critically prior to 2000, I think is a question that, and maybe I'm not wrong, or maybe the right answer is maybe 97 or something. But there's a time where they started to be really more passionate about it. And the answer is simple. That was the rise of the pharmaceutical industry involvement in, the, in, the, in, in cancer drug development. Prior to that, you know, there's not a lot to be super critical of. There wasn't a, a plethora of randomized control trials with very intricate ways of gaming. Uh, it was largely response rate driven kind of stuff and it was very simple, but we didn't have a lot back then. Then the industry comes in, swoops in, and you get a, a, a sort of lots of ways they're gamed. And, and then these guys started commenting because they had honed their acumen. But now fast forward to the modern world and the average academic there, no one is being rewarded for any sorts of critical thinking. In fact, the lab manager people, it's all brute force. Sequence every every poop that ever came out of this guy. Sequence it. And then let's see if that had anything to do with anything in a, in a you know, huge analysis that has no hypothesis. Or uh, And then the trialists, how many academics are were just running industry trials over and over again. And they're not even an academic. They're more like a money manager for the pharmaceutical company that happens to be the pharmaceutical company's inside person at the university. I mean, and, and and yes, they're putting people on trial, but it's not the same cognitive thing. And so what it means to be an academic oncologist, I think, is not nearly the same as what it was. And then, of course, when people have their back against the wall when you got them over a barrel, as we often do with the control arm, with the post-protocol, with the sensory, they have nothing left to say. The, the dying breath is, well, you never ran a trial. You know what you're talking about. Uh, and uh, I was like, well, you never. I was like, I was like, you never asked that medical writer to draft figures and uncritically looked at it. You know, I was like, okay, what are you telling me? I mean, that's not really useful. Okay, thoughts? I think... Um, as you said uh, at the end of your show on that positive note, I think the positive note is also I see on Twitter many accounts, maybe more, you know, this philosophy of critical appraisal is gaining is gaining popularity, I think. I feel that. Maybe, you know, your your works, uh, works of others, uh, Malignant, I think, contributed to that. So I think there is really a wanting from trainees, from doctors worldwide, uh, for these kind of um, of skills, so I try to be positive. That's a good point. And there is a wanting because plenary session dominates the oncology podcast market. Yeah, I saw that. You saw one, that unpublished. One, you can't one, say you can't say it. One mil one oh, million. You can no? say that. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, yeah. One million views in last year. But um, but we have that ongoing project she's going to publish soon. But um, we'll we'll show it to you soon. But um. Yeah, we dominate. We dominate by a lot. We're crushing everybody. But that's because they don't say any. I mean, very few and seldom do they say anything critically. I don't want to say absolute, but very few and seldom say things critically. And very rarely they actually get someone who's not stuffing their pockets with industry cash. Okay, let's turn to the next paper. What should it be? Elastistrand? Yeah, Elastistrand. I think it's, uh, it's another example of what we talk uh, on the first settlement. Why don't you tell listeners about it? Yeah, so here, um, Elastestron is um, it, it's an emerald, emerald trial. So it's an open phase three trial um, with uh, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer patient, hair to negative, metastatic, um, and the inclusion criteria patient uh, should have received one or two lines of prior therapies without chemotherapy. They should have received an anti-CDK four or six um, treatment, and they were randomized between elacestron, and we will talk about that later, or investigator choice of standard of care, and we will also go deeper in that. And maybe the last thing I say before giving you the, the words, um, the two co-primary endpoints were PFS among old patients and PFS among the ESR1 mutated population. So ESR1 is a is a mutation that is supposed to to lead to uh, resistance to prior endocrine therapy. I see. This is a selective ER degrader. CERD. I've heard of CERMs, but I've heard of CERDs. And emerald, which costs more per gram? Can a listener tell me the answer? Which costs more per gram, emeralds or elastostront? That's the question. Yeah, we, did, we, we didn't talk about that in our paper, you're right. I wonder which is more per gram or carrot. Well, I don't think drugs come in carrots, so you have to find a way to, equivalent the, to equivalent, make them equivalent, but the listener can do that for me. All right, so 
what you're saying. You've got women, metastatic breast cancer, fair to say, and they've progressed on at least two anti-hormonal therapies. Yeah. So what you want to do to your control arm is just give them probably more anti-hormonal therapies. You don't want to give them chemotherapy or anything like that, would you? Um, I, uh, I, I feel something <laughs> in, your, in your voice, in your tone. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, the issue with the, with, the, with, the, with the design. So... And, and, and also the data we have uh, recently is that 43% of them did receive two prior lines. So it was not mandatory to receive two prior lines. It could be one or two. But what we know is 43% did receive two prior lines of mm. endocrine therapy. And so if they were in the control arm, they receive either fulvestron, another third, or aromat aromatase inhibitors. So... so is it really the standard of care? That's my question to you. But I think the answer is no. I mean, it's delinquent to give the control arm more full vestrin or aromatase inhibitors after two uh, prior lines. I mean, how much? How long can you let this continue? I mean, can they get ten lines of anti-estrogen therapy and not get chemotherapy? And the other thing is, um, it's not specified. I mean, it's, uh, we we don't have the published trial for now, but it's not specified if the patient that received. A, Aromatase inhibitor should receive fulvestron, and if the patient patient having received fulvestron should receive aromatase inhibitors. I see. So it's not it's not we cannot exclude that maybe some patients receive fulvestron then fulvestron. It was possible according to the uh, rules of the trial. Here's what the trial I'm looking it up on clinicaltrials.gov and here's what it says: NCT identifier. It says phase three trial of a elastostrant versus standard of care. But it's not standard of care. That's already it's already yeah, I think six, six words in is a lie. So seven I words think, in is a lie. I think here is another way, a sub, another subtle way, to to create substandard control arm by mixing the settings. Here you are mixing the settings of first line, not first line, second and third line, because you allow patient to and there's not uh, there's many trials now with kind of mixed settings, and if you don't have the data for every pre-treatment post-treatment you, you see what i mean of course you you, you can't really s know wh what is uh, the uh, the outcome in the patient that you will be treated like that but you know that um mark lithgow and myself wrote that article in nature reviews clinical oncology yeah. the fda has a draft guidance where they are proposing more mixing lines and they want to mix lines i know why they want to mix lines they want to mix lines so they can say in a single mixed line study you know whatever uh drug a has an improvement in outcomes in CLL. Therefore, the drug is approved for CLL. And what that will do is finally solve them of their great headache, which is they don't want to enforce these post-marketing studies and it's all too much for them. Just give a single approval for the drug in that entire tumor type and they let the market hash it out. You want to give it at, you want to give it early, first line, second line, third line, that's your business. But we just approved it for everybody. And they have done that by changing their guidance. But what it means is people will be harmed. There will be people enrolling in studies who have many, many life-extending life options. Life-extending options. They will forego to enroll on these investigational, perhaps even uncontrolled studies of pan line, and they'll get this big marketing author approval, but you may have even shortened lifespans in some people. You won't even know it. There's no control arm to even find it. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen, but I think they're doing it to escape the, the great challenge they face, which is that they don't enforce post-marketing commitments, and it's not fun to do it. I think there may be settings where you can mix some lines, but... At least you have to, to pr provide a control arm that is reflecting this mix of lines. I like mix, mixing lines like 7 to 11 myeloma, you know, like, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah, mixing. Very, sure, very, late very advanced, right. But here, so here was, a, was our main issue. Um, so you have a reported PFS benefits. The trial is not yet published, I think. Um, you have more toxicity in the elestron arm than the standard of care arm. Uh, I think seven, um, grade three or more toxicity, uh, 7%. It was 3% in the standard of care, uh, care arm. So, yeah, PFS benefit um, in all patients and in the, in, in the ESR1 uh, subgroup population. Again, surrogate endpoints, all the limitations of the control arm. And um, we don't see a lot of criticism of against this design it's the emerald the paper that i'm talking about is entitled the fda's latest mood to expand eligibility for oncology trials a double-edged sword mark lithgow and myself 
September, Nature of Skunk Oncology. Your paper is entitled, do you know what it's called? Elacestron in the, uh, is the standard of care, uh, I think something like that. Elacestron in metastatic breast cancer is the standard of care really meeting requirement of standard of care. Elacestron in metastatic breast cancer is the standard of care meeting standard requirements. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. And it's out in translational oncology. So let's summarize our talk. We're nearing the end of our hour. Hmm. Covered a lot of stuff. Are these all the papers that we worked on? Are there even, I mean, all the published ones, because there's got so many in the unpublished I category. I think there's the iceberg. I'm not the first author. But oh, let's talk about iceberg. You want? No? Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's do it. So this was, I read a paper, and the paper was about molecular blah, 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 blah. You know, people getting molecular directed treatment, and, you know, of course, there's no control arm, and you know how they like to do it. But I saw something interesting. I saw the supplementary appendix had an Excel spreadsheet attached, and that Excel spreadsheet had individually patient data for every person in the study. And I thought to myself, oh, they something here. And I thought to myself that because I had done all those published reports, those, those like over umbrella reports of case reports with Go Nishikawa and Jalu, um, uh, who's now at Dana-Farber, and um, um, uh, Andre Vandross, my good friend. And we had published looking at, you know, when you look at exceptional stories in the precision oncology literature, these are the exceptional stories. They make the literature, for Christ's sakes. They're exceptional. I mean, I'm telling you an exceptional story. It's got to be exceptional. But even in that creme de la creme of the biomedical literature, many of the stories were not exceptional at all. The patient had exceptional biology. They'd been treated with so many things and lived so long and far outlived the median survival of their condition. For instance, a woman with anaplastic thyroid cancer who had two years of treatment and then she tried something new, and I think in this case it was crizotinib. And people said, wow, she had six months on crizotinib. That's really good. And I was like, yeah, that would be really good for somebody who had untreated anaplastic thyroid cancer. But for somebody with anaplastic thyroid cancer that already lived two years, which is like the 99th percentile of survival with that condition, you are going to give a long, you're going to get a long, a long um, progression-free interval from nothing because their cancer is indolent. And so is it really so good? And that was what the purpose of our article was. But by doing that, I had gotten into the weeds on the von Hoff plot on ratios of uh, PFS1 to PFS2 and, and that sort of stuff. And this paper had that data in, the, in this Excel spreadsheet so we could actually do it. And um, so I tasked Mark with doing this. So the paper was uh, led by Mark Hilgo. And actually, I was involved later when uh, in the, in we the talk, Zoom meeting. Yeah, when we talk about the data in, in our Zoom meeting. I think this is also an example where our meeting are very fruitful because uh, you see the data of others, you can have ideas like that. And so your main, your main idea was to reconstruct the data and show that previous therapy was yeah. sometime very long yeah, before the idea. next, uh, the sequence-driven um, sequence driven therapy. So by looking at the data, I just propose that maybe we could uh, just align on the same uh, on the same line the beginning of the sequence driven therapy so this was um, the idea and so you just said okay timothy just do it so i started working on it and by working on it i say okay if i put it in not vertical line but horizontal line and then we when we saw the data we Think about the we name of iceberg it. plot yeah. because you can just gather the data and the pre-treatment therapy are longer than the post-initiation um, duration. I and that's, yeah. yeah, the perfect analogy because the iceberg, what, four-fifths of an iceberg is underwater? And when you look at this, four-fifths of the treatment history is prior to the, quote, precision drug, you know? What does that tell you? If one-fifth of the iceberg is underwater and four-fifths is above water, that tells you the precision drug is something remarkable because it did what other drugs couldn't do. We, we, we would have wanted the Fuji plot. The Mount Fuji, yeah. Yeah, you wanted Mount Fuji. But we didn't have the Fuji plot. Mount Fuji meaning little below the land and a nice peak. But iceberg plot means a lot below the water surface and a tiny peak. And that tells you that very likely the people in your study are indolent biology. Let me try to explain that one more time. There are two possibilities that happen when you treat somebody with a drug and they live a long time or take that drug for a long period of time. One possibility is that drug extended their life, that they would have been dead had it not been for your drug. The other possibility is that through your implicit and explicit inclusion criteria, you found a way to weed out people so that you're only left with people with very, very slow-growing tumor. 
And by doing so, that you give them anything from Skittles to Starburst to uh, Elastistrant, and they're going to have a long time on that drug because they have slow-growing tumor. So it'll take a long time till that tumor gets to 120% cross-sectional area and resist 1.1 progression. Which And how do you separate the two? And the simple way to separate the two is look at the pre-treatment history. How many treatments did they get before? Were they already somebody who had lived a super inordinately long time with their tumor? And a nice way to visualize that is the iceberg plot. Now, there are lots of ways to visualize cancer data. There's the swim lane plot. That shows what happens to individual people, and each person is a lane. And it shows when they had the response and, you know, when it evaporated. The other way to visualize individual people is the spider plot. That is a um, left justified, they forcibly move it all to the left, um, tumor dimensions of everybody. And then the third way that is very popular these days is the waterfall plot, the single best subsequent scan. And I've published that paper with uh, Sunny Kim about some of the pitfalls with waterfall plots. But swim lane, waterfall, and spider all have something in common. They were developed by the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, I think they're really developed to kind of show that these things, it visually looks nice. I mean, the waterfall plot is the single best subsequent scan. It's not the second best or the third best or the fourth best or the worst. It's the single best. So it's literally the best look of that data, but it doesn't mean it's realistic. You can have a wonderful waterfall plot, but unfortunately everyone has passed away. It's a distortion of reality. It's like someone's Facebook profile photo. They pick the most flattering photo of themselves. It's not, may not be how they actually look. Um, similarly, not similarly, we sought to make a plot that's actually more impartial. Actually, I don't think the iceberg plot is your unflattering photo. I think it's your real photo. It's your photo, um, what's it called? Uh, taken um, in a relaxed and natural state. I think that the idea to align the initiation of the new therapy is important, is fair. Your idea is the important idea. No, no, it could be done in a yeah. vertical way. It could yes. be done, in, I mean, we, d we did that as the iceberg, iceberg plot, but you can do in many ways, but just to align the initiation of the new therapy. I agree. I think that that's, uh, a, a, and also I think this plot is the first plot ever to show prior therapy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nobody wants to show that. Show me a waterfall plot of the last drug they got. Yeah, let's see it. But, you know, this is all the same issue. I think the issue that annoys me a little bit, which is that, I don't know. I'll tell you the issue, and I'll give you the closing thoughts. This is the end of the podcast, the closing thoughts. The issue that annoys me is that um, this is a field that really matters. It's life and death, and people are really suffering. It's a real disease that really has real suffering, and it has been uh, intertwined with humanity for thousands of years, and will be intertwined for thousands of years more. I don't see a cure. And each year, the most idealistic and bright and, uh, and, and great young people pursue the field, and you would think that their goal would be to try to do what's best for patients using the least amount of drugs to achieve the most amount of life and the best quality of life. But very quickly, they get seduced by the temptations of the field, which is that it's very hard to kind of have a scientific career, be very rigorous, and do that. And it's easy to cheat. And cheating means you don't write your own papers, the medical writer does. And cheating means you don't recommend the best control arm, you recommend what the company will allow you. And cheating means you ignore deficits in health-related quality of life. And one of the ways you cheat is you cheat yourself because the less you understand about imputing data, imputing, da imputing missing data, it's easy to say, I didn't know to ask them that. How can I be responsible? I didn't, nobody taught me that. You cheat yourself. And you cheat, but most of all, you cheat patients. And what do you do this for? I mean, the difference in your career by all this cheating, all this cheating, what do you get for it? You get maybe career lifetime earnings are $1.5 million higher. And I mean, I, I think an oncologist in this country probably makes 3.5 million career lifetime earnings. There's some paper that looked at that. Your career, maybe your career lifetime earnings go up to, you know, five. Okay, was that worth it? I mean, the cost to society is probably not 1.5 million. That's the cost to you. From some unpublished data we have, the cost to society was probably 400-fold higher maybe 500, maybe 1,000-fold higher. That's the cost of society. And you didn't really benefit people because all the ways you cheated are ways that you cheated ultimately cancer patients. And I guess it bothers me that, you know, being idealistic, and that's the problem with social media, that everyone, they put the idealistic mask on. I'm an idealistic good person, but they don't do the hard work of, yes, you can have your heart in the right place, but what does it actually mean to make people better off? And if you participate in a harmful system, you are to blame. Closing thoughts.
Yeah, I think I will balance and nuance a bit okay. uh, what you say. I think for most of our colleagues, they, they are doing what they are doing in good faith. I, I think. Um, I think more about a systemic, uh, systemic uh, working. You know, as you told, to make a career is much more easy if you do trials, and they are very often mostly industry-sponsored trials. Is it easy to criticize a trial when you were yourself a PI? I think it's not easy at all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think more about the systemic, you know, problem here than really, you know, people by people. But um, yeah, as you said, it's really about health of patients. And um, this is what we are doing also. But it's, uh, I think, yeah, there is a need for more appraisal and for more fairness in benefit and risk of anything we propose to our patient. Very good diplomatic of you. I think you're right. I mean, I agree with you in the sense that it is a systemic failure and needs systemic solutions. Maybe I'm just a little bit cranky today because I was eating my lunch while we, I didn't eat lunch until Yeah, maybe four you just huh? have some hypoglycemia. Yeah, now you're better. <laughs> but uh, I don't think, I mean, I, but I do think that, yes, it is a systemic failure. Um, but, uh, I, and, and I, yes, I, most people are good actors. Maybe my question is, yes. um, Let's how, uh, huh? I think, I think what is interesting for me, how to improve that. Yeah. Um, I think you were proposing some very interesting, I think collaborative uh, trials are really important, right? but, uh, maybe there are too few of them, but how to improve that? I think the culture of critical appraisal, um, is very important and, I feel it's gaining some, you know, some popularity, but um, I don't know what are the solutions to that. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the solutions have to be, you know, real structural solutions. I mean, you know, I talk about in the book Malignant, some of my solutions, but like this whole world where the industry runs their own trials agenda, that's just crazy. I mean, that's got to be stopped. I mean, you, you can't have the, the painter be both the judge of the painting contest and the person submitting paintings. And that's what we have in the current system. And so I think we need a not, I mean, we currently have a drug user fee. Every time you submit an application to the FDA, you have to give them two and a half million, three million dollars to look at that application. We need to make that instead of three million, 33 million, the cost of the trial plus the user fee. And then the FDA will design and conduct the study. Now you need to make some changes to the FDA. The FDA's incentive is to someday work in the industry. You have to fix that incentive so that they're actually incentivized to stay there. But what you want is, I think, non-conflicted people who are mostly methodologists, actually, and not actually disease-specific experts. That's the mistake people make. People who are good at methods, um, at figuring out what is the best trial design to tell you truth from illusion. And those trials should be run by non-conflicted groups like the Veterans Group and, 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 uh, and, the, and the, the National Institutes of Health, kind of some cooperative group. We have a cooperative group system, but it's been totally hijacked by the industry. I mean, ha all their studies require industry approval, and so that they really are just kind of like another arm of the industry. I mean, we have a study of AAVD versus ANEVO-VD. There's no control arm of that study that's actually what the control arm is of ABVD. That's a cooperative group study. How, how did that ever happen? I mean, that the cooperative group has basically given Brentuximab a free marketing, you know, and that's a tactic, right? The control arm is basically free marketing for the company. Um, that's a, that to me is bad, um, and and so and then the next the ne whole next section is like I mean there's several buckets but like FDA reform CMS reform you know in my book I talk about yeah yeah and we're gonna come to it because there's the next uh, we have to introduce ah, yeah, the reason yeah. you can announce that I'll announce over the next few weeks we're gonna do every week a one hour book club discussion of malignant R listeners can read along and next week we'll do uh, intro and chapter one and we'll go through the whole book um, and we'll get to the solutions but I do think there's structural solutions there. Chapter 14. Chapter 14, yeah. Um, what can the FDA do tomorrow or something like that? Yeah, the FDA and other... And other agencies, yeah. yeah. Um, but the part I don't think I talked about in the book as much is like junior academic investigators. I mean, I think that that's a place where the corruption easily happens. Um, and I think, I don't know, there needs to be better systems of funding people who are actually doing good critical work. Uh, and I also say that because I, I don't want that funding. You know? <laughs> but uh, point. But 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 I do think there has to be some way to incentivize people to actually, you know, be critical. Um, but some of the places that surprise me are like the New England Journal. How, I mean, how many times have I submitted a? I'll just speak for myself. A letter to the editor that was really damning, and they refused to print it. 
I mean, that's dis- that's disgusting. I mean, you're printing the industry swill in your ma- in your ding, and you won't even print a letter, and you won't even get the authors to reply. And then what if you ask them for data, simple data, like how many people had grade two events, and they don't answer? The editor has the has the authority to say you don't answer this, you're not publishing in this journal ever again, or we'll pull your paper. You know, you have an obligation to answer a simple question. Simple question: What was the post protocol therapy? The editors don't do that. That is disgrace. I mean, how does anyone, you know, you talk about the fact that these are mostly good people, and I'll agree with you. But some of these things really trouble me because the editor, they're not getting paid by the company. They have, I think, an oath to what's best for patients, and they won't even let, they won't even let the critic ask the question. They won't even get the answer. I think it's a bit strange nowadays that you have all, all this can be web-based, like in the BMG. I mean, yeah. so I think, yeah. I so you're saying that you. space is not a limitation. Yeah, space is not a limitation. Yeah. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. I think people will enjoy it. If I was too cranky, I apologize. I hadn't eaten lunch and I was eating it while we were talking. And it's like four o'clock in the afternoon here. And I actually don't eat breakfast. So I haven't eaten in like a long time. So that's why I was cranky. Too but, much, too much. But even though I was cranky, I stand by what I said. I think, I mean, I think these are the, these are the core problems. This is the problem that people need to tell you. This is what you need to be woken up to. Get your head dunked in cold water that people who are telling others that they have no right to comment because they don't have whatever useless credential they think, they themselves I, I don't think, know what they're talking about. I think everybody should be allowed to comment. Yes, I think and so to, too. And to push back maybe, and sometimes you can be wrong, sometimes you can be true, but you can have discussion about that. Look, everyone has an opinion on COVID, even the people who never read the paper, so. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> But don't worry, now they all have an opinion on Ukraine. So, on that positive note. On that positive note, thanks for having me, Binai. It was an interesting discussion. And uh, see you maybe soon. Next week, because we're going to do, I mean, how many chapters are in that book? Mm, 16? 19, I think, no? No, Chapter 14 is uh, the solution, so. I think it's it's, uh, four parts of four, 16, and then the epilogue, and then the intro, so maybe 18. Um, We're going to do two a week, so I guess it'll take us nine weeks to do. Um, people can uh, send questions to Timothy Olivier. You can find his email on one of his uh, publications. No, you don't want to. You don't want no, them no, email. I, I, <laughs> so if I, you, he, his job is to prepare some questions and talking points. Yeah, I will. And uh, and we will go through those chapters. So we might as well. He's in town for a year. So what else are we gonna do? All right. On that positive note. Thanks. Bye.